Welcome to the Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. Hello, welcome to this week's Dividend Cafe. This is David Bonson, and I am the Chief Investment Officer at the Bonson Group, and I'm surrounded today by my investment committee. We are continuing our weekly surge of technology brought to you. I think we're videoing this, we're recording this, and all it is is the five of us sitting around talking markets, talking the economy. And uh, with the shortened market week, we're, we're trying to pack a lot in here. As we're recording right now, it is middle of the market day Thursday, and market's up about 450 points. And so you, we dropped about 280 on Monday, uh, excuse me, Tuesday. Market was closed Monday for Labor Day. We're up uh, uh, most of that earned back on Wednesday and then now up 430-ish today. So a little rally here to start into uh, September. Ironically, because of the rally late into the month of August, you, you really right now are only a couple hundred points now down from where we were the all-time high in the Dow. And and I think from a percentage standpoint, the S&P and Dow are both within striking distance again of being where they were um, right at the late part of July. So I'm joined with the investment committee. We're going to walk through all these things. I have Brian, Julian, Dea, and Robert all here. And guys, what do we make of this market, trade war, interest rates, yield curve, Brexit? What else do you want to talk about today? Manufacturing, the economy, the election. Other than that, we'll just sort of talk fantasy football, I guess. Yeah, first <laughs> yeah, day of NFL. That's right. Seven or eight pretty big things in front of us. Uh, uh, and I'm not referring to, to fantasy football yet. Uh, Brian, what's your take? Market rallying, is this just more volatility or is this uh, actual change in direction? Um, I, th- I think it's just some more volatility. Um, you've got some good news today with China and, and U.S. trade talk going to kind of resume in person in Washington. Uh, I think first week of October. You had Hong Kong kind of walk back their extradition bill, which I think was positive. There was uh, the no deal, no hard deal, I guess, Brexit kind of vote that's going to go through. So all those things matter. And then again, you But know. wait, you think that, oh, let's stop with that one for a second. You think that, uh, it, okay, obviously the idea that China and U.S. Sure. are going to meet for trade, positive markets, that's probably the big source of the rally here this morning. Yep. Um, uh, the Hong Kong deal, I think, was a big factor earlier in the week. Uh, but you think that the uncertainty around Brexit and the lower likelihood of hard Brexit, that that is part is a good thing for markets right now? It seems to me it's adding to uncertainty. No, I think I think it does add to uncertainty. That the whole back and forth with it, it certainly does. I'm more referring to kind of intraday. So markets are up today. It doesn't hurt when you get sort of kick the can down the road, taking the hard deal off of the table. I think actually gives markets a little bit of a boost. Um, whether they get something done at all and, and whether it takes forever, you know, we'll have to see. But at least for the day, it would be considered positive. Julian, is a hard Brexit off the table? Uh, betting odds in Britain brought it from 60 percent. Yes, hard Brexit would happen October 31 to now 21 percent. Uh, Boris Johnson has not had a good week. But is hard Brexit off the table? Um, technically, it's not uh, off the table yet, but I think it's most likely off the table um, for that date, or for that date, for that date. Okay, yeah, um, but uh, you know, it's. Um, I mean, I know uh, with my French accent, you guys don't realize I'm also British. Uh, I have the nationality. I lived there for for many years, and um, mm. and I think that you know, it's uh, this it's, is getting very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> it's confusing. It's important, but it's important if you're British. Very important. It's important for maybe European markets, but for U.S. markets, for us, I think it's not that important, really. It's much less material than what the Fed is doing. 
than trade war and, and that, you know, earnings really. And I guess if you look at uh, what happened yesterday, that tell, it gives you an answer. Like on this press release by the Chinese that they have, there's going to be discussions in October, you have this ma massive rally, you have the vol going, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, much lower. And, and we're back in this circle of, you know, tension, you know, uh, markets going lower, and, and then going back to now negotiation table, and who knows uh, if negotiation uh, even happen, and then if they happen, if we get a deal. But it, this is still like more than a month away, and before that, you're gonna have the Fed meeting, and you're gonna have a lot of, you know, you're gonna have earnings coming as well, uh, starting October, so there's a lot that could happen before we, we get into that meeting, potentially, in October. Yeah. So, so Dea, we have, um, you have the VIX right now between 15 and 15 and a half range, it's, I feel like that's what the VIX should always be at. Like it should never really be lower than that. Like there's a there's enough uh, uh, justification for cost of protection that that level seems pre pretty rational. Very low VIX relative to this macro events that one way or the other still linger. But again, is there anything directional? I think Brian was hitting this well. This feels like more volatility. It happens to be a little more up of volatility than down lately. But do we see a breakout coming? And if so, is what would the catalyst be? So uh, as far as far as uh, is this a directional move? I, I to me, it's it feels like more risk on risk off type stuff. Like like Brian said, the can's been kicked down the road with Brexit with Brexit a little bit. Yeah, maybe that adds a little bit of uncertainty. I mean, the only thing that I could see that could make this directional is some sort of clarity around uh, U.S.-China trade talks, which uh, which is probably a consensus view. Uh, if if there is some resolution there, if there's just some sort of deal, uh, you know, just to remove some uncertainty to give uh, business confidence a little boost, I think it could be directional. But but I would have to need I would need more information. I would have to wait and see. Um, so is today's rally, uh, let's, uh, you know, again, it's going to move yeah, all around yeah. 450 points right now, unless there's other stuff behind it. Does the mere announcement of a meeting on negotiation really justify this kind of rally? I, I mean, it's the market being overly hopeful. So uh, yeah. Hopeful I, of what? That a deal's going to get that, done? That, a, that some sort of deal will be on the table. So I, 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 I don't know what Just so you know, I'm pretending is. I don't know the answer. I really know the answer. <laughs> okay. And I'll clear it all up for you I can't guys. wait to hear it. I can't wait yeah. To so so but, you think it's the market being hopeful. Yeah, right. I think it's a risk on risk off thing. And yeah, I, I, don't, I don't take it as a sign for anything of lasting direction, you know, as far as an indication goes. Got it. Yeah. So Robert, I, I, uh, I agree with everything Dea is saying, but I have one little thing that is giving me pause around the idea that when we're in risk off, we're in risk off. And that is, I was pointing out to you the stuff yeah. in Divin Cafe, the high-yield bond spreads haven't, haven't really widened that We're, much. The investment-grade corporate bond spreads have tightened. Risk on, risk off, it's true. Risk assets yeah. have gone all up together on certain up days in this volatility of the last month. And risk assets have all sold off together for the most part. But corporate spreads are not reflecting risk off. No, and we're in a healthy space there, as, as you noted, in the high-yield space specifically. We're right around the 400s right now, and that's not extreme. That's pretty good, and that's a that's a real barometer. I mean, the bond markets really tell us the truth. Equity markets tend to be more reactive, but I think a lot of times the smart money can be can be viewed in the bond markets. I do want to comment on something. Well, can I say oh, something? Yeah. 400 is not only not extreme. It's no. on the low yeah. side uh, historically, about 500 average over 20, 25 years. But that's, that's also when the Treasury was at 3 4 5%. 
So just as a nominal like investment return, a return on capital, yeah, 4% spread, but the 10 years at one and a half. So people are loaning money to junk credits mm -hmm. to people that are very likely to not pay them back for five and a half percent. I know we're supposed to focus on the spread, Brian. You and yeah. I have gone through this yeah. over the years with our sure. taxable fixed income guys. Sure. The spread trumps the absolute yield, but the absolute yield... You're buying junk paper at five and a half? Yeah, no, it's crazy. In this, in this world. I totally agree. I mean, that looking at those spreads is a great indicator, and I yeah. think bond market kind of is more indicative of where things are globally than than even stocks at times. I mean, today, or maybe last night, yesterday, you had three companies in the U.S., Apple being one of them, with $200 billion uh, yeah. sitting on cash issues, $7 billion worth of debt, 30 years at 2.9%. So companies are taking advantage of where, where yields are, but to your point, Five and a half for a junk company versus three for Apple. I, I don't know. I just don't think there's there's enough reward for the risk that you're taking. The one thing I wanted to mention really quick too, with uh, we're talking well, about that three for Apple is at a thirty year. There's a thirty year. Yeah, year. Apple's yeah. costed ten years. There's less than two percent. I know. Yeah, it's it's close to U.S. Apple should Apple should issue a trillion dollars of debt. <laughs> yeah. they could give Dr. Dre so much more money. Yeah, everybody <laughs> should. Yeah. yeah. But Robert, I interrupted you yeah. before. Finish that thought. Yeah, I was just gonna say, piggybacking off of Dave's comments on the VIX, you know, two things that we tend to not uh, like here at the Bonds Group is you know VIX trading. I mean, so many people got their their lunch money taken in, in that over the last couple of years. Uh, and then the gold space as well. I mean, we see the VIX hovering in, in the, the mid-high teens, right, which isn't historically super high. But what I'm seeing, you know, you look at economics, confidence, and substitutes, there's been a big inflow into gold too these mm -hmm. days. So I think a little bit of the moderation in, in the VIX has been because of that flight to, to gold and, and gold miners, things like and that. And treasuries as well? And treasuries as well, of course. Of course. I want to make clear before I forget for our listeners, we just briefly talked about Apple and I want to make clear we're talking about it as a um, hypothetical anecdote to this issue of borrowing costs, our comments were to use them as an example of what's happening in the corporate bond market. We were making no comment positively or negatively about Apple. There was no recommendation in there. There was no security analysis. We were purely just using as an example of the state of affairs. Okay. Well done. Well Good done. comment. Yeah, more, more investment grade debt versus uh, high yield. <laughs> So, so back, Julian, to this issue on risk on, risk off, where does the yield curve fit into this? I mean, I think last time we all spoke, and we, of course, talk about this stuff all the time, but we're pretty much a consensus at the Bonson Group, which makes us not really in consensus, we're definitely not with the media. I think that there's a fair amount of people that are agreeing. I'm finding more and more economists who I respect that are in a similar or nuanced you know, rhyme to what we're saying. But I still think there's a lot of people just saying, look, yield curve means recession coming. Yeah. Um, do you think that the market is taking its P's and Q's from the yield curve or is the yield curve taking its P's and Q's from the market? Um, that's a good way to think about it. I guess the market is, is still debating whether this is the, the yield curve inversion is, is a sign of a recession coming or not, because uh, it's torn with the historical data that's telling you that it is an indicator. And on the other hand, the market knows and we know and we believe that this time is different because you look, need to look at the rest of the world where the yields are and you need to look at the fact that the Fed has been you know, distorting the market, uh, the credit markets. So that's where I guess there's uh, the limits of the exercise of looking backwards. So, you know, there's, it's still inverted, but the Fed is addressing that. There's one cut coming in September. Do, you, it's, it's do a, you think it's a good indicator, the yield curve inversion, historically? 
I think it's an indicator that we have sluggish growth. We have a risk of recession, but I don't think it's a hundred percent indicator that yeah. we are going into recession. And I, I would think, I mean, I would bet that we are not going going to go into recession. Yeah. I would bet that this we are sluggish growth, and bet we're going to avoid the recession. That would, if I had to make a bet, I would say that's the, uh, the problem. Uh, the problem with saying that the market is rallying around the yield curve is that the yield curve is not um, widening today. Okay, the two years up twelve bips and the ten years up twelve bips. Yeah. I mean, so today's the, definitely about the the trade war announcement. Yeah. Well, I think yes. I think. Did you see where yields went right when ISM came they out today? They all came up across the term structure. That's Ten, what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, no, the it, shape, they the did. It's a little steeper, but but you're right, not by much. But ten year went from one fifty to one fifty eight within four minutes of ISM coming it, that's out right. today. No, that's right. And I think it's that. And you we were talking about direction, like like that's a fundamental number. Like that can change the direction a little bit. That's that's looking like services in this country, which are far bigger than manufacturing at this point anyway, are still growing pretty robust. So we had PMI that and was And not as weaker. sensitive to the trade war. Yeah, and not as sensitive. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. 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 One yeah. thing I guess I wanted to add is that um, maybe it's possible that we all overreact into the, what trade war could do to the economy. Because if you look at, actually, there's some number that are quite interesting, is how much of the of the uh, job in the U.S. are from manufacturing, it's only 8.5%. Yeah. So... You know, the U.S. economy is mostly consumer, and business confidence is the one that's we're, we're worried about. But uh, oh, you know, there's I, I just don't I don't know that I can get there. Okay, so let me play yeah, along sure. with this. Yes, the consumer is the larger part as a percentage of what GDP growth comes in. So, so let's make up a number. If GDP growth is three percent, the consumer is going to be about seventy percent of that three yeah. percent. And if GDP growth is forty four percent, the consumer is going to be about seventy percent of it. That part's true, but when GDP moves, it is coming from a different category than the consumer that gives it above trend line, let alone recent trend line growth. So when GDP growth went from, let's call it just to be political, Obama's 1.5% to Trump's 3%, that didn't come from a consumer spending even more. The consumer was always the big part of it, mm -hmm. which you're right about. But then it was business investment that moved the needle higher. Yeah. So as a percentage of where GDP growth, consider it GDP alpha, mm -hmm. the percentage of where GDP alpha will come from is business investment. Yeah. No, that, that's right. I guess what I'm saying is like if this trade war doesn't, uh, you know, last for you know uh, for two three years. I mean, if it's well, we're a year in. We're a year yeah. in. But if, you know, yeah. if you look at uh, from mid 2015 to mid 2016, you had a lot. You had a lot of uh, a big pullback in business uh, investment, and the uh, the consumer expenditure still rose by 2.5 percent. So the consumer held the you know managed to help the get the economy you know, the economy in that period. Something thinking it's possible that the consumer help us avoid recession with, even with uh, without business investment. But Robert, I have a question on this. Uh, if Julian's right, that we avoid a technical recession, meaning the math of GDP stays above 0% mm -hmm. because of the consumer, but these other things all happen, yeah. is it going to matter? Does that make a, is it, well, is well, it going to feel like a recession anyways? Well, I think Julian's absolutely right in that the consumer spending hasn't been affected. But I think a, a large part of that is what, what are the, the trade war implications thus far? A lot of it's been hitting B2B institutions and these this latest round of tariffs is very much more consumer focused only one percent so far has been targeted that, consumer that, that's right so i mean to, to some extent we might have seen margin compression with businesses which kind of trickles through and business confidence mm -hmm. tells us a little bit about that but we'll see what happens as a result of this this phase four type of tariffs i mean we're leading into the holiday season which is a huge part of consumer spending throughout the year 
So I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's a lagging indicator what the consumer spends after the prices increase a little bit. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that's true as yeah. far as indicators leading and lagging. And also, I mean, the one thing about the trade war is it's definitely affecting capital expenditures. And I mean, going into this, you know, one of our main theses this year was that CapEx was going to turn on and, and that would, it was you know, kind of fuel markets. And that spigot has technically been turned off because of the trade war kind of falling apart in May. And I think that's more of a leading indicator. As far as business confidence is more of a leading indicator, and we want to see that pick up. And to, to Julian's point, maybe we're underestimating the effect that, that the trade war could have on businesses. Uh, if businesses are able to be flexible around uh, just their supply chains and and how this trade war is affecting them directly, they can't. You, okay, they no can't. way. I, mean, I, I agree. Yeah. If, if yeah. they could, then I would think that. Uh, and I think you thought we, people may be overestimating the concern of the trade war, not yeah. underestimating it, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, I think. I mean, that's kind of what the market is. Uh, the way it's reacting today, it's telling you like yeah. maybe well overly pessimistic about what it could mean uh, in terms of, you know, the impact on the economy. So so I think that there's a, a lot of truth in what all of us are saying, and, but then there's a kind of nuance to it that I'll throw out there. It's very difficult to analyze how the market has thus far reacted, business, consumer, all, because we don't, the market hasn't really ever believed it's going to happen. There's been this whole, almost like eschatological thing of the trade wars on, but it's more potentially going to come, but then it may not come. And so the reactions of, of economic actors have not fully been actualized. I think mm -hmm. that's in those spreads that we're talking about, too. You know, if, if it were, it if the market too. really did believe that that wasn't going to happen or something was going to really fall apart in a bad way, I think spreads would blow up much more than they are. And so I guess the question I'd have, like, I, I really agree with Robert's point that there has been a lot of targeting. By the way, there are so many exceptions that the State Department, Treasury Department, Commerce Department have granted on the tariffs. So there's all kinds of little carve-outs of companies trying to get out of it. But I don't, I don't know how we could say, uh, based on, first of all, past experience, but also just pretty basic macroeconomics, that if you went all the way forward mm -hmm. and the supply chain were hit with the level four of uh, the, the fourth round of tariffs, that that would not have trickled down effects to other part of the economy. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it would have a trickle down effect. And look, look, we're talking about all companies right now in the same block. So obviously, uh, different companies will it'll affect some disproportionately. And but I assume that over time there will be adjustments made, and some companies will have the ability to make investments in areas and. Uh, maybe uh, obviously their margins might be hurt in uh, in the short shorter term, but over the long term, I don't know what type of adjustments they're going to be able to make. But I think I think that your point when I cut you yeah. off before I was trying to be somewhat funny, but I I actually do mean it. No, the the size and scale of some of the companies, the idea of them moving production on shore, which would be ghastly more expensive. Or yeah. moving it to Vietnam or, or something like that. Or, yeah. It's two years. It's three years. Uh -huh. Some companies, five years. And I, and I actually have done more research on this than I ever otherwise would have because not only is all of this happening right now globally, but we have such a significant amount of clients who have international businesses, mm. including a lot with production capacity in China, that I'm hearing from them. And they're all saying, this is like, we don't even know what, what to do. And, and so I feel like there's been a kind of little miniature research just within our own client base of business operators saying, David, we cannot move from China to Vietnam by next quarter. It doesn't work that way. 
Sure. So, so sure. I fear the trickle down effect, the uncertainty, and then the invisible thing. And this is where uh, one of our charts at dividendcafe.com this week shows the uh, CapEx Plans Index, which is assembled by our old friends at Morgan Stanley, collapsing in August, 3.4 points. But it's really been in a downward trajectory since right around March of 2018. Now, what happened then? That was the launch of the trade war. Mm -hmm. It had been skyrocketing higher from November of 16 to February of 18. This theme is almost impenetrable at any chart I look at. Durable goods, new orders, ISA manufacturing, small business optimism, mm -hmm. uh, CEO confidence, all of these metrics that tie into some aspect of business investment and business confidence went way higher at the point Donald J. Trump was elected president and peaked at the point the trade war started and have dropped at different levels of speed and magnitude since. And some of the tax changes were some of the reason that it did go up. And like Either uh, anticipation it, it, of the tax it, changes or the mm -hmm, actuality. Which would fuel CapEx, and, and then that's coming off of the table. Um, I think the amount of tariffs they're now affecting are equal to about the amount of stimulus, fiscal stimulus that we had with, with I know we wrote about that in this week's Dividend Cafe, but it's 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 pretty shocking. And I think that chart is indicative of that. Yeah. Um. So let's uh, let's we've talked yield curve. We've talked um, trade war. You got to do a little Fed. Uh, what is the date, Julian, of the Fed meeting, the open market committee meeting this month? 18. I think 18. it's in 12 days. So I'm not sure I had to do the math, but yeah. Uh, um, but they're doing two days. So it's probably the Tuesday, Wednesday. So 9-11, it would be the and, 17th and 18th. I and it's amazing to see how the, you know, implied probabilities changed. I was checking yesterday and yesterday we had 90% chance of one cut and 10% chance of a second cut. So yeah. a 50 bips cut in September. And then I look again this morning thinking what well, will happen. It might have changed a little bit. And and so today we're more like at 90% of uh, one cut and zero ch chance of a 50 bips or two cuts and more and maybe now five to 10% chance of, z of mm. zero cut. Mm. Yeah. So just on that, you know, trade war announcement, the, the Fed expectations have been repriced. Uh, what stayed steady is the December futures pricing in. That's right. Something near half around there being a one additional cut and about half around two additional cuts. Seems to yeah. me... The, the takeaway is we're getting one cut in September, yeah. meaning we're not getting zero, we're not getting two. Are we getting one or two additional in yeah. December? I, that's right. On, on the margin, it's still, you know, it's moving, but the, you know, the, the main trend is one cut in September has been around 90% for a long time, and we're getting there. So uh, I guess it's, uh, it's extremely likely now. And one more by the end of the year, unclear exactly when, and that's how you get to, uh, uh, you know, uh, to end the inversion of the yield curve. Yeah, I, and I think that's a good point, that a lot of these implied odds figures that a lot of listeners might be seeing on the news, there isn't a lot of persistence to these figures. We can see them swing around quite a bit from day to day. So I, I'd be careful in trying to base your decisions off yeah, uh, implied odds in general. I don't think they've been moving a lot the last month. I mean, the, the, no, the idea of one yeah. cut in September has been pretty consistent. But as far as the probability scale, I mean, how much did they, the probability swing for two cuts or for... Well, I mean, it was just the last few days. It went from 90... It went from 90 of one and then 10 of a second to 90 of one and 10 of none. Yeah. And not even so, quite 10. And, it was like 7 or 8. So for, from 2, it went from 10 yeah, to 0? Yeah, but the 2-cut right, okay. probability was only 10%, so it's kind okay. of, you know, but I'm saying it the would one, never the happen. The one-cut theory in September 
has been pro yeah. high probability yeah. has been about 90%. Yeah, it's been constant around 90% for a while now and just sometime going to two for like a small percentage uh -huh. chance and sometime going back to one for... It's basically... So it's very stable. Yeah. Yeah. If you yeah. look at, you okay. know, 90% is quite a stable number, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 50 bips before the end of the year, 75 is what's oscillating back So if forth, you get 75 bips between September and December put together off of, they already did 25 in July, that will bring the Fed funds target to 150 basis points. Mm -hmm. So this is an important question. Um, should that affect our bond positioning and should it affect our risk asset positioning? Dea then Robert. Uh, so as far as uh, you're talking about after the cuts are made? Yeah. Uh, well, I think that it in general, as far as uh, equities go, it's hard not to be more bullish on equities if uh, rates in general are lower. I mean, whether, you know, as far, and I, I'm I'm not exactly sure how the whole term structure will uh, adjust. I assume that Either it'll just- the Fed. It'll just be a little steeper. Uh, that's my, my assumption. Uh, so I am more bullish uh, as far as equities go, given that rates will be lower. And after those cuts are made, uh, I am less bullish on fixed income, uh, given there's not a lot of uh, coupon to clip. I'm talking about uh, fixed income for uh, investors that are just thinking about buying fixed income after these cuts are made. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'm I'm bullish on equities and less less so on fixed income. So, I, I mean, it, it sounds like the nutshell is the rate cuts would do for you what what they're intended to do is they would give you a bid to risk assets and get make and make risk uh, uh, free assets less attractive. Right. Uh, who knows how, how how good this is? I mean, uh, it's a bit obviously distortive. I I'm not a fan of stuff that distorts markets uh, as, as the Fed is doing. But but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you you have to make decisions based on the lay of the land and on what I, is not what ought to be. Right. And and that's it. It, it uh, incentivizes you to do just that. Yeah. Robert, I'll tweak what I asked Dea for you. I'm assume that you would agree with him in the very short term. But what, what does it mean for our longer-term perspective if, indeed, we're going to get this extended, further accommodative Fed? It, 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 it gives a boost to risk assets short-term. What does it mean for us as we look out so, further? You know, looking at the last—just take a step back—the last three inversions and what happened 12 to 18 months after the fact, you're looking at high teens returns on the equity side, right? So if 50 bips is, we can assume, priced in to, to where equities are at right now, and 75 bips is kind of the wild card there— an additional cut at 75 helps us to get to that that high mid-teens returns in the in the 12 months following when the the curve inverted. So I'm I'm very optimistic for equities over over that period of time specifically and and even more specifically the types of equities we like. On the bond side, you know there's there will be volatility coming into the next six months. Of course, we have an election year. I think there's still a very strong demand for the security of of yields even as they're dropping a little bit, both on the on the um, taxable and muni side. I agree completely. I'll add a caveat. I suspect you're going to agree with it, but if not, please please push back. The only caveat I'd make is that I'd be less interested in bonds for those income investors and equally interested in bonds for asset-allocated, accumulated investors. I would agree. It, it provides hedging. It provides defense. provides diversification. But for those who need a coupon, they're, look, they're not going to get it. And mm -hmm. then within you, when you say I'm stuck strategically as an asset-allocator in, in an asset class for coupon— and the coupons go from three and a half to one, you start reaching and you mm -hmm. make really bad decisions. Mm -hmm. yep. So Brian, let me ask you this. Um, both Day and Robert gave the answer that I think if you isolate the consideration 
to the Fed stimulus, and Julian's talked about this over the last couple of sessions we've done in the podcast. Okay, the Fed's probably going to be stimulating, and it's very hard to argue against a re-rating. The S&P is at 16 to 17 forward, mm -hmm. and you're going to end up with an even kind of man further manipulated Bunda asset valuation. That's a fair consideration. But what, when, what about when you expand economic uncertainty, political uncertainty, someone who wants a 70% wealth tax <laughs> on wealthy Americans to potentially become president, someone who wants to repeal corporate tax cuts or change corporate tax? In other words, don't you have to take the monetary stimulus and interpret it in context of other uncertainties that linger? I think absolutely. I mean, the one thing I'll say to all of this is we're doing all of this stuff. So we're talking about lowering interest rates, 50, 75 basis points, like you guys discussed, be good for stocks, bonds. We'll talk about allocation decisions and things. But they're doing all that in the context of a lack of recession. And so, um, you know, you can talk about maybe it's a policy signal that the yield curve is inverted right now rather than economic sig signal, which I think is a valid point. But I get to your question this stuff is being done without a recession on 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 the landscape in the short term. And so uh, as all of those other things kind of come to materialize, whether it's political turmoil or geopolitical and, and whatnot, and you actually get a recession without as many arrows in the quiver, um, you know, that's something to consider as well. And uh, but all of those things matter and all of those things speak to where rates are globally right now and yeah, where the economy is. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. And to that point, as far as. Uh, when we're talking about, uh, look, what asset classes do you like? As far, if rates go from X, to, you know, to to two or minus, you know, whatever, whatever, whichever direction they're headed, the pretense is all else being equal. So, uh, so when you're doing your analysis, all else being equal doesn't really exist in real life. Rates don't move down, and nothing else in the economy happens. So, a multi-factor analysis is always needed, but it's also useful to think of things in isolation. Absolutely. When you're making oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so uh, Julian, day is teed up for you. I'm going to let you hit the ball off the tee about dividend growth. When you do multi-factor analysis, right now, Fed and also these other economic concerns, need for defensiveness, possibility of re-rating of risk assets, where does dividend growth particularly look good in this environment? Well, that's the reason why you receive a premium for owning these risk assets. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there, but um, instead of making one and a half uh, yield on the 10 year, you can make, uh, so at 16 times P, that would be a yield of about uh, six, 7% on the on the equities. And if you look at the stocks we own that are more defensive, that are cheaper than the market, we're more around 13 times P. And that would, you know, that gives you a yield that's more in the in the seven eight percent, and then on on that an earnings yield in earnings yield, yeah. and then mm -hmm. in dividend yield or income really that you uh, you you receive on an annual basis, we're close to four percent at, at the moment with a bet with a bet of zero point below zero point eight. So it feels really good owning, I think, these assets uh, in this environment. And then the big question mark, of course, are earnings. Um, you know, uh, we look back at Q two. Um, uh, even with uh, Tradewell being, you know, around four year holdings, and you know, most of the S and P 500 companies have done uh, well and beat expectations. Uh, Q3 is around the corner. Um, will be interesting to see what happens. Um, the, but uh, that's really then down to earnings, and um, we'll have to um, we'll have to see uh, in the coming quarters. Um, so it sounds like what you're saying is that all dividend growth is doing right now in the environment we're in 
is giving you a much higher yield than the 10-year and the S&P at a much lower valuation than the S&P. That's right. And with far greater earnings reliability than an S- the S&P. Yeah. Other than a, that, that sounds right. like an awful idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and then I guess, um, if you know, just looking at some data, if we, I mean, we have, I think, 30, 31 equity names in our portfolio. And I was just looking at, you know, how many of them have uh, recently have uh, reporting dividend growth this year. And the number is like, 90, uh, you know, close to 90%. So they, most of them, I mean, we've, I guess, done well uh, selecting these stocks. They're all growing dividends. Mm-hmm. And the only three or four that I haven't is because they haven't announced it yet for this year. So we're going to be like at 97% ratio. And so, the average is more like, is, is, is around 5 6%. So it's, um, you know, uh, it's, I guess... It's a nice asset class, I think, in this environment. Well, let me let me bring us to conclusion here. Um, I think we're ending a little shorter than normal this week, but we all have some more meetings we have to get to. Let's um, summarize it this way for listeners. You uh, you had a good week, it looks like, in risk assets in the market. We'll see what Friday does. Shorten market week. I think summer's kind of officially over, and those final treks back from people's Hamptons homes to their trading desks takes place this weekend. You'll get a little more volume in the market next week and maybe even more volatility. There'll be another Democrat debate soon. We're going to see this is a political projection, not an economic one, but those two dovetail at times. I think you're going to see the solidification of Elizabeth Warren as the front runner and the downtick of Joe Biden as the front runner in the months ahead. If indeed that happens, by the way, Biden can't, Biden will, he'll disappear. He, he his whole claim to fame is centered around what, what he uh, has his credit maintained. So markets are dealing with the uncertainty of the trade war. The next round of talks, which are not scheduled to be until October at this point. There's not a whole lot on the policy agenda right now. We still don't really know if Lighthizer and Pelosi are going to get this NAFTA 2.0 across the finish line. But the, the president's taken away the capital gain uh, inflation indexing off the table there's not a lot to really move the market other than where earnings end up coming in in the next quarter, which we're still over a month away from quarterly earnings season beginning. So you have trade war, and then you have the kind of Democratic primary. We're going to be watching those things, and we're going to stay at neutral levels. Maybe we'll see uh, some opportunity to take some money out of bonds on the margin. They've had huge gains uh, this whole calendar year. But the problem is that the markets haven't, the equity markets haven't acted that bad. So we don't see a screaming rebalance need to pull from bonds to stocks. So really, our neutral weightings have served us well. You had positive return in alternatives in August. You had positive return in fixed income. You barely had a negative return in equities. You've had some repositioning around some of the foreign composition, particularly for us with our Japan exposures. So I think that right now, this is a good time to be invested but not be getting dramatic, dramatic negatively or dramatic positively. And hopefully the wisdom of all my colleagues and partners today has helped inform your views. Anyone have any final words of wisdom they want to say before we sign off? And of course, I'm referring to who you're going to start at running back in your fantasy. Uh, was, I was just going to say, being from Chicago, what do you think, uh, Robert? Are they going to pull it off tonight against the Packers? I think they must. 100 years, it's a good reason to celebrate a victory in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think that um, it, more important even than what teams win in opening weekend and the fact that Dallas got Ezekiel Elliott back mm-hmm. signed and all that, more important is that this is the greatest time of year 
for anyone who loves God, family, and country. Amen. And Julian, <laughs> can we count on your participation in our American football activities this I thought, fall? I thought you were talking about the rugby World oh, Cup that's standing in. <laughs> Badminton. <there. laughs> Thank you all for listening to the Dividend Cafe. I'm going to make an offer to those of you as we sign off here. If you will go write us, review, and send us the review. You give us some stars, you write a little review, then we get a hold of it. You email us. So we have your address. We're going to send you a copy of our Dividend Growth book, The Case for Dividend Growth Investing. Thank you for listening to The Dividend Cafe. We'll be back at you next week. Thank you for listening to The Dividend Cafe, financial food for thought. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced here will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinion, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team at Hightower should not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date reference. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.